Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna be talking about home services market. We're gonna be talking with two co-founders that have built something super, super meaningful and something really solid. A very uh, interesting company that uh, is disrupting what it is a four hundred billion dollar space. Uh, and I think that uh, you know they have really interesting backgrounds and they're gonna really teach us a thing or two about how to really build and scale. Uh, a business. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome Bahe Kusoyan and then also Ara Madesian, the co-founders of Service Titan. Welcome to the show today. Hello, glad to be here. Thank you for having us, Alejandro. Amazing. So I know that, uh, let's let's start with, uh, with the backgrounds here. So I know that, for example, Ara, you were born in Tehran where there were bombs all over the place. Um, so can you tell us how was life there and then also, you know, being born, growing up there, and then moving to the U.S. How was that process for you like? Of course. So like Vahe, I'm Armenian, uh, but I grew up in, in Tehran. Uh, I was born there. I was born in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war. So as my mom was giving birth in the hospital, uh, the city of Tehran was being bombed, and they'd have to constantly rush us down to the bunkers and then bring us back up. And finally, I came out of the womb. And shortly after I was born, several months later, uh, we left and immigrated to the United States, and we ultimately settled in Los Angeles. Wow. So um, so what about for you, Bahe? Yeah, my birth was a lot less dramatic, uh, but it was in the Soviet Union era uh, of Armenia. Um, I was uh, six years old when my family decided that there was... Um, a change that needed to be made, and like many other uh, immigrants, uh, pursued a path to America where the belief was that there would be a better opportunity for uh, the kids. And so that's what we did, and we ended up settling in L.A., and that's where I grew up. And why L.A. for for the both of you? Was there like a big community uh, there of Armenian people, Ara? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think early on, Probably one Armenian family settled here in Glendale, and then many others followed suit, and and we were one of the followers as well. Now there's a, a pretty large and burgeoning community of Armenians here in Glendale. Got it, got it. Super, super interesting. And and was it like uh, for the families, like a big culture shock, uh, Bahe? You know, like uh, 
moving there and then experiencing really the the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. Pretty much everything was different, starting from you know the 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 system. They were coming from a communist Soviet system to now, you know, it's the free market. Uh, and then, of course, all of the other things in terms of language, in terms of culture. So it was a it was a pretty uh, dramatic shift from what they were used to. And um, that journey, you know, as as many people go through it, uh, was not always all rainbows and sunshine. So there was a lot of culture shock uh, in that process. So, Ara, how did you develop the the love for computers? You know, when I was really young, say five, six years old, my dad, when he would come home from work late at night, uh, once every couple of weeks would actually stop by a Barnes and Noble and randomly pick out a book uh, to bring home to me for my own development. And he didn't know English very well. So many times he actually didn't know what book he was picking out. And on one of these occasions, he brought home a book that I think he completely randomly picked out of a bookshelf. And I looked at the cover and it said, uh, learn visual basic in 21 days and i had no idea what visual basic was it happens to be a programming language i had no idea what programming was but i opened up to, to page one and i realized it was teaching me how to build computer programs so then at the time i went and downloaded visual basic i started step by step with a book and a couple weeks later uh, i was coding and building software and i got fascinated by this and uh, this continued throughout my childhood and into my high school years. In my high school years, I would spend a lot of time after school building small software applications for various local businesses or friends of the family that needed something to help them in their business. And so I got exposed to this idea of you know, B2B software way back when. And, and really cool that you got into Stanford. I'm sure that you know your parents were super proud of you. Well, uh, back then, it almost seems like they'd let anybody in, and, and they also let me in. I got the luck of the draw there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as you can imagine, for any immigrant family, education is the most important thing in the world. And uh, Stanford is one of those dream schools for my parents, and very grateful to have gotten that experience. And Bahi also has a very interesting background. So so I understand that you know you had the a little bit of the business, you know, in you, uh, but then also neuroscience. So, so what is this neuroscience? Where is the love for neuroscience or the interest into neuroscience? What first and foremost, what is neuroscience so that people listening get it? So, neuroscience is the study of the brain, and I know it may seem like on the surface these are two completely different topics, uh, but once I got a little uh, taste of. Uh, looking at how the functionality of the brain was basically doing computations just in a different way than computers were, that's where the connection happened because uh, at the end of the day, both a computer and a brain have some sort of an input and have some sort of an output. Uh, they just tend to approach it from vastly different perspectives. And so when I was deciding what to study, not only was there this kind of cool functional connection I just wanted the fanciest sounding degrees I could possibly get my hands on. And computer science and neuroscience sounded pretty fancy. So that's what I went with. And very, very fancy. And, and why, why business in there? I mean, did you know at one point that you were going to start your own thing or, or what was the deal for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, since early on, uh, I was pretty ambitious in terms of what I wanted to accomplish. And I figured that um, having some basic level of uh, business understanding would be helpful. 
I actually started off uh, majoring in business and was pretty close to graduating when I realized that I didn't feel like I really had any sort of tangible skills that I could, you know, go to market with. And so I ended up dropping the major and just got left with a, with a minor instead and refocused to the, uh, the other degrees. Got it. And, and obviously you guys uh, had seen as well uh, from your parents, no, the, um, the process of building your own business. So, and I understand as well that both of your parents, what a coincidence, they were both plumbers. Is that right, Ara? Yes, both of our, our parents were home services contractors. Yeah. Got it. So, I mean, did you, for example, in, in your case, Ara, did you see like, what was that day-to-day uh, of uh, building and scaling the business, the ups and downs? What was that experience for you, like living that a little bit from, from the outside? No, I mean, you were not really operating. Absolutely. Look, uh, when our parents came here, they came here with no knowledge of the language, no particular job in mind, and, and definitely no money. And so they had to do all kinds of odd jobs, whatever was available to them, to put food on the table. And by doing all these odd jobs, ultimately, what they settled on doing was plumbing and other home services related work. And this became their profession. And so growing up, Vahe and I saw all the trials and tribulations uh, our parents had to face in trying to operate and slowly grow uh, these very small home services businesses. And you can imagine just what kind of uh, fires they were constantly dealing with. I mean, I, I still remember, uh, you know, my dad used to come home really, really late at night, it, almost a broken, tired, you know, dusty. Uh, and all he would look forward to was a hot shower and, and a hot meal. And then it was yeah, the typical shoebox full of receipts and invoices that he would have to process at home instead of being able to spend time with us. Or it was you know, figuring out timesheets and payroll to make sure his team was able to get paid. And all of these things not only you know was extra work and made him more tired, but ultimately took away precious time uh, that he could devote to us. And it, it was really... You know, seeing these these challenges that inspired us to ultimately you know want to do something for them i, I think you hear the the typical saying of you know founders created something to solve the problem they had i think in our case we created something to solve the problem our parents had yeah you know and this is interesting that that you mentioned this because one of the uh founders that i recently interviewed it was the same thing you know it was a frustration that a it was experiencing directly from a business that the father was was running, and eventually he went on and he did it. So uh, really, really cool. And you guys, so here you are. One is in Stanford. The other one is in USC. Uh, and you both decide to join this Armenian association, and then one day, you know, things come together. So Vahe, why don't you tell us, you know, that day where you guys finally got to meet each other? Sure. So uh, we were both members of our respective Armenian Student Association group uh, at our school. And it just so happened that USC and Stanford had joined forces to organize a ski trip uh, to a local mountain here, uh, Big Bear, next to L.A. And uh, we just happened to literally pull up next to each other uh, when we were going in. And it's very possible that, you know, we never would have met had it not been for, you know, that coincidence of pulling up because there was like a hundred people on that trip. And so we just bumped into each other and we got to talking and it turned out that we were both studying computer science and uh, we were both trying to solve very similar problems for our dads. And so it was just like a very 
a random set of coincidences. And after that trip, we you know kept in touch and we met a couple of times, and it turned out that uh, we were kind of both going in the same direction, and we decided to join forces and haven't looked back since. And was there like uh, brainstorming sessions that you guys had, or or just for the people that get that are listening, like to get a a better understanding of how was that process from like the day that you guys met to the day that you guys finally said, oh, wow, you know, this is interesting. You know, like, what about this? What about that? And then all of a sudden everything clicks and, and it makes sense to go at it together. So Ara, why, why don't you tell us, why don't you walk us through that process, that journey? Yeah, I think Service Titan was was almost born accidentally. Uh, I think both Vahe and I had these ambitions to work for some of the bigger tech companies. Um, but it was during some of this downtime to help our parents where this bigger opportunity came to us. And originally, we just decided, you know what, let's spend just the summer building something to help our parents better run uh, their businesses. Because by virtue of being exposed to Silicon Valley and tech, we had seen that for every industry in this world, from software companies to big pharma companies to consulting companies to whatever else, every industry had great software so that you could run a much more efficient business. You could sell a whole lot better. You could market a whole lot better. You could manage your financials. And when we looked at the challenges our parents were facing, we almost thought it was crazy how backwards things were. I mean, we had gone off to school for four years and came back and we saw our parents' businesses were practically frozen in time. And we thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. So we decided we were going to dedicate that summer to building uh, software similar to what we had seen in other industries to help our parents. And I think what we saw after we built it and, and gave it to them was how remarkable the transformation was, how much better their customer service became, their sales became, their marketing became, how much more efficient they became in the back office. Revenue started growing up, costs started going down. And through word of mouth, other people you know, locally in LA found out about the software we had built for plumbing and related companies. And others reached out to us to, to get this software. And once you know, some small critical mass of people started using the software, we realized you know, these guys depend on our, our software to run their entire business. And their entire business happens to be their entire livelihood, as well as the livelihood of you know, whatever dozens of employees they had. And so we kind of realized, yeah, this is no longer something we can abandon. We can no longer go and work at big tech companies. This pretty much has to turn into our venture and then we started growing from there. So to that point, Dara, just to follow to follow up on that, uh, how how many people you know was this, or was there like already like a, a specific you know uh, amount of revenue that that or sales that gave you guys the idea of hey maybe you know this seems to to make sense to to really explore full time rather than having this as a project? I mean, what was that trigger for for you guys, say, Ara, to really say okay, let's let's go at this full time? Yeah, you know, what I remember is it was still just the two of us. And we had roughly, I think at the time, like 10 companies, which isn't an awfully lot. But yeah, you think about these people, they're such hardworking, salt of the earth people. Um, yeah, this is not a very glamorous industry, but these people are first responders that leave their families to come and serve, you know, yours. When there's something wrong in your house, a burst pipe, an air conditioning that's down in the middle of the summer, you need someone to, to rescue you and your kids from, from those challenges. There's a certain nobility to what they do. And it's, you know, when you 
get the opportunity and the privilege to work with customers like that, yeah, it's it's all it's captivating. It, you know, grabs you immediately, and you don't want to do anything else. So even at that small scale, we realized, you know, not only can we not abandon them, but this is incredibly rewarding work, and we really want to continue doing this. And the co-founder relationship is is definitely one of the biggest decisions that one makes in, in business. It's actually one of the biggest reasons why companies fail. I think is that over 60% of companies fail because of co-founder issues with egos or whatever. And I know that for you guys, have worked, has, it has worked pretty well. Uh, so I want to I wanna know, and perhaps also the listeners would love to know, like, obviously there was a really interesting synergy. There was one thing that one of you guys contributed and then the other one, the other one also contributed from a strength versus weakness perspective or expertise. So Vahe, what did you bring to the table that was magic uh, for this relationship to work? And what did Ara bring to the table as well? And how you guys decided to say, okay, you're taking this as responsibilities and I'm taking that. So let's move forward. Vahe, can you walk us through that? Sure. So in terms of our journey, what was interesting is uh, if you were to look at kind of who we are as people on the outside, we uh, look completely different, not obviously aesthetically, but in terms of just how we think about things, uh, even stupid things like how we dress or, or our predispositions towards, uh, you know, one side of an argument towards or another. And during the early days, that difference created a lot of friction, as you would expect. And so I think what a lot of listeners should realize is that sometimes the best partnerships don't always start out as being super clear. So I couldn't tell you when we were first beginning, these are my sets of strengths and weaknesses and these are ours. We just knew that we were both uh, committed to achieving big things and that we were, there was a common core that was the same, but there was a lot of differences. And then throughout the years, we started to see that there's certain situations where Aura is super strong, where I was not as strong, and then vice versa. So in our case, the way that ended up shaping out is uh, anytime there was a uh, more of a go-to-market motion or a sales conversation or a, some exercise in persuasion and negotiation, uh, it was clear that I was not the stronger person to be taking that lead. Uh, and then other situations, if we had a specific uh, technical thing to figure out or the customer was going super in the weeds about this thing or that thing of their business, that's where I would tend to jump in and, and take over the conversations. And so we ended up separating duties uh, pretty cleanly in terms of where the customer journey would begin and end. Uh, and then we both were pretty hands-on in terms of the product, uh, just from the fact that we were both technical and that we could write code. And so over the years, it started becoming clearer and clearer what the difference should be and how to delineate responsibilities to ultimately deliver the best experience for the customer. And so that's kind of how naturally uh, things shaked out over the years. Got it. So in this case, uh, Bahe took over engineering and, and product, and then Ara really focused on go-to-market. And, uh, and what I want to follow up on this, uh, perhaps in Ara, so that people really get it, is how did you guys ended up like really you know, optimizing that business uh, model and, and how you guys are making money today? How does that look like? You bet. Uh, so ultimately, we sell software to to specific industry. These are home services businesses that'll do certain services like plumbing, air conditioning, electrical, etc. Uh, you mentioned four hundred billion dollar market, and our product is an all encompassing 
business management software they use to run every part of their business. It does CRM, it does ERP, uh, it manages scheduling, dispatch, inventory, payroll, uh, point of sale, everything from start to finish. And it's a subscription software. Software as a service where they pay a monthly fee uh, in exchange for the product. And our, our go-to-market motion has been a combination of, it's all direct sales, uh, combined with some sales that are initiated through partner uh, and a lot of marketing power behind it and, uh, and sales development practice in there as well. And, and one of the things that, the, you know, for, for a SaaS business, I think that keeping a low churn is, uh, is king, like really retention is everything. So, uh, you know, Vahe, since you're really leading, you know, the, the product side of things, even though you guys are very much involved, the two of you on the product side, what have you learned about churn and retention, Vahe? Oh, yeah. I mean, for us, uh, ever since the beginning, and I would say up until now, that's definitely been the most important metric that we focused on because it tells you a lot. Uh, and to me, the biggest thing it tells you is the degree of product market fit, because if you're hitting that correctly, you really shouldn't have any churn outside of death or marriage uh, if you're in the enterprise space. And by that, I mean your customer should, I, you, the only time you should lose a customer is if they go out of business or if they get purchased by uh, or, or, or acquired. And in our case, the whole value prop of what we were selling is that we're going to help you build a stronger business. So we didn't even accept a, a customer going out of business. Basically, we said they shouldn't go out of business if they're running on Service Titan. And so that's been something that we've been maniacally focused on. And it served us really well because what happens is the things that you would do to prevent churn ultimately lead you to building a, a more valuable product and service for your customers. And it's a very strong signal if someone's about to leave you, that's probably the best learning opportunity in terms of what to focus on next. And in our case, because we lived in an environment where there, it's not like there was a billion plumbing companies or air conditioning companies out there where we had unlimited uh, you know, top of the funnel leads, um, we were forced to retain every customer that we had. And in retrospect, that was actually the biggest uh, factor in our success because we were forced to become the absolute best at understanding the businesses of our customers, communicating how we're going to drive value, and then ultimately delivering on that commitment. And so for any business out there, I would say churn should be front and center in terms of everything that you're doing. Even if you could attain the growth with the churn, Ultimately, it's going to be uh, something that comes and bites you in, in, in later years unless you tackle it pretty quickly. Got it. And, and obviously, to build the, the size of the company that you guys have built, I mean, money or capital is going to be you know, required if you want to speed up you know, the, the efforts on all fronts. And, and I believe you guys have done pretty well on the, on the fundraising side of things um, and perhaps a all right, you can you can walk us through this. So, so how much capital have you guys raised to date? About three hundred and seventy million. Three hundred and seventy million, and I understand as well that the valuation is one point six five billion. So, uh, pretty unbelievable, hey guys! Congratulations on on the incredible progress. So, so Ara, could you walk us through what have been those financing milestones, what were the different expectations that you were seeing from investors? And, and then also, what was the process? Because I understand that in your guys' case, it was very much inbound. 
Yeah, I think we've been very fortunate here. So look, uh, early on, Vahe and I built the software with Sweat Equity, um, and we were seated by uh, just a, a close acquaintance that had a lot of conviction, I think, in us as individuals um, early on when there wasn't really a product or a market or anything like this to show for it. And in hindsight, it turned out to be a good bet, I guess. Um, later on, we partnered with a local accelerator in Los Angeles called Mucker Capital, uh, and they were instrumental, not so much in, in giving money, because at the time, they weren't giving much money. Today, they give a lot more money. Uh, at the time, it was a lot of advice and expertise that they were sharing with us. And I think that was particularly important for us, uh, because frankly, this is the first, not only the first business that Vahe and I have really ran, but it's actually the first job that we've had. So we haven't even been able to see how you grow and operate a business from the other side of the table by being an employee. We've kind of had to figure everything out by making a bunch of mistakes until we realize what the right way of doing things are. Um, the, the first real institutional capital was when Byron Dieter at Bessemer Ventures uh, led our Series A. And that was during a demo day. We were demoing our software and Byron's team happened to be in the crowd. And frankly, at the time, we never really thought we would partner with these very large institutional investors because we were a little bit afraid of them. We didn't know what they were like. We thought they would take control of the business, et cetera. And so we were convinced we weren't going to do anything. And Vahe and I got to know Byron personally over the next nine months, where every time we were in SF or every time he was in LA, we'd get together. You know, Byron at the time and continues to be uh, the most successful earlier stage B2B SaaS investor of all time. And so there were a lot of portfolio companies we got the opportunity to learn from uh, by talking to them. And over nine months, we realized, man, Byron is an amazing human being. He also happens to be an amazing investor. He's not going to come in and mess things up. He's completely aligned with our values and the way we like to run the business. And we made the leap, partnered with him, and that exceeded expectations so much and was such an incredible experience that we decided to do it all over again in our Series B uh, when we came across you know, the next investor that, that had the same values and operated the same way. And that was Will Griffith Iconic. And I think yeah, today they have the reputation as probably the leading B2B SaaS growth investor. Um, and then C and D happened. And all of these rounds, yeah, fortunately for us, happened to be inbound. Uh, we never really ran a process. So I don't know if I can give a lot of advice on how to run a great process. I think the key is focused on building a great business. And if you have a great business that takes care of customers, uh, investors will find out about you and they will be knocking at the door to be able to invest. And just to, uh, to follow up on this, Ara, the, um, when we're talking about inbound and especially for your C and D rounds, was it like via an email? Was it the, these people were like asking for an introduction to one of your existing investors or, or what, was, what was the inbound really? How did that happen? Yeah, I, I think you, you get both. So we get a lot of inbound emails and typically uh, these tend to be from you know, more junior team members from the investment firm. Um, our conversations happen to be with the top partners, the, the top general partners or managing partners at these firms. So typically those, um, you know, would sometimes come in through email, but mostly they would find a way to connect with us. It was either through existing investors or other notable execs 
yeah, that we were close with or other CEOs that we built great relationships with, or even, yeah, bankers and advisors that uh, get really involved uh, in later stages of a, of a company's growth. And, and to follow up on that as well, and maybe Bahe, you can, you can jump in, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. You know, I, I understand as, as Ara was saying that you guys were very uh, much aware of, of the potential damage of bringing in the, you know, the wrong investor with the wrong type of agenda. So was there like a certain, like a must that you and Ara, you know, really got a line on if this investor doesn't have X, Y, or C, there's no way that we want to have them, you know, as part of this journey? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in our case, what we were absolutely clear on uh, from the very beginning is that there was a certain set of core values that we were absolutely going to be non-negotiable on compromising with. So for example, uh, being customer-focused and making sure that everyone was on the same page, that at the end of the day, we're trying to build a long-term business. And we believe that the only way to do that was to make sure that your customers loved you and that if we ever needed to choose between growth or focusing on our customers, that we would choose our customers first. And so that was something that we uh, vetted very carefully with every uh, investor that we talked to. Uh, and then the other part is you just have to be comfortable uh, once you get to know the person uh, that you can build a relationship that ultimately results in a high level of trust because the way that we operated our business was always with um, as much transparency as humanly possible. So being able to have someone around the table that we can ultimately be vulnerable to and pull into our internal decision-making processes versus trying to impress from one boarding to the next uh, was absolutely uh, fundamental to how we went about choosing a partner. And so that's kind of the high level, the criteria that we went through in terms of picking who we ultimately wanted to uh, bring on board. Got it. So, uh, Ara, how many employees do you guys have? How, how big is the, the company today so that, you know, the people listening, they get a good idea? Yeah, we're, we're just above 800 employees now. Wow. I mean, that's a, quite, a, quite a big number. And, uh, and I've also seen that, you know, right now you guys have quite a, quite a lot of people that, uh, that you're servicing. So uh, any, any type of, like, metrics or, or anything that you guys say will be comfortable Disclosing, I believe you were like over 2,000 customers or covering like 50,000 technicians or something like that, that I think that I, yeah. that I read. So maybe, Bahe, maybe you can, you can share some of those, uh, whatever numbers you feel comfortable sharing so that people, you know, understand, you know, how, how big the business is today. Yeah, I think Ara might be a better place for this one. Go ahead, Ara. Um, so today, our customers annually do over $10 billion of annualized transactions. Uh, in the home services space. And we have just around, you know, just over 3,000 customers on the Service Titan platform. And as you mentioned, that represents some 50,000 technicians that are going in, out, in and out of homes every single day. I think yeah, it's about 10 million homes that we serve uh, every year. I mean, Service Titan, of course, doesn't serve those homes, but our customers end up servicing roughly 10 million homes that they're in each and every year. And yeah, business still continues to scale very quickly. We will be, be very close to, to doubling the business again this year and hope to continue a similar pace into the, the very near future. 
Really, really cool. Very, very impressive, guys. And and one of the things here, I mean, I'm I'm seeing, for example, on on LinkedIn, you know, they they show like the insights and the growth on on employees. I know that this is this is really not accurate, but it gives you kind of like a, an estimation. And it says that in the past 24 months, the company has grown from an employee perspective over 150 percent. So I mean, obviously, that's quite significant. You were alluding to the 800 employees that you have now, but I think that you know, if the company is growing at that rate. You guys also have to grow at the same rate as founders in parallel. Otherwise, you're going to be outgrown by the business. So I'd like to get your perspectives, you know, on this individually. Uh, and I'd like to understand how you guys have also been able to keep up with the growth uh, personally yourselves. So maybe, Bahe, you can you can tell us how you, how you have grown in parallel as a leader yourself as well and transforming yourself through this journey. Sure. Uh, so as you'd imagine, going from uh, a couple of uh, buddies working together to an organization of 800 requires uh, a lot of growth. And in our case, we were starting with basically no reference point, this being our first job. So I would say the most important thing that's allowed us to do that has been uh, our ability to basically um, – not hide or not run away from our shortcomings and in fact run into them and be very open to acknowledging hey this is an area where i need to improve this is an area where i can do better particularly between us being able to have that trust where we can each let our guards down and acknowledge those areas is i think the the most important aspect because once you get to that point uh, it's pretty straightforward in terms of how you make this adjustment or that adjustment and uh, what further helps is if you have someone on the other side who has a complementary skill set where you don't have to fight every battle all the way to the end, we can kind of divide and conquer. And as far as the rest of the team grows, uh, that same principle applies in terms of having a culture that is focused on high level of trust that allows you to openly discuss where the big uh, opportunities for improvement are. And, you know, to, to be fully frank, we constantly ask ourselves, uh, are we scaling with the business? Uh, has ha, Have we reached the point where we are no longer driving it forward, but in some ways holding it back and being very open to whatever answer comes back when you're asking that question? And so uh, being able to be open about that topic and just acknowledge that it's a continuous effort and growth, which as anyone who's done anything big understands that it's painful and that it's uncomfortable but that's when you know you're growing. You know, there was that great quote about uh, somebody asked, I think it was Muhammad Ali, uh, how many push-ups he does. Uh, and the number he gave was extremely low. And when people said, hold on, how is that possible? He said, well, I only start counting once it starts to hurt because that's when you know you're actually making progress. And so being able to, to uh, take that on and get punched in the face and come back up every day and continue growing is the most fundamental thing uh, I think you need in order to have that ability to scale with the business. That's very powerful. So Ara, feel free to build on top of that. Yeah, I think Vi and I <laughs> try and focus on only a handful of things and frankly, for the rest, you know, get the heck out of the way. Uh, as I said, we've never built a business, we've never let it scale and, and we've never had a job other than this. And I think the, those handful of things are one, we have to make sure we get the vision for the company correct. So in terms of figuring out how the product is going to evolve over time so that we go into new markets, we build and launch new products, and we continue to iterate the business model over time, 
Uh, all that's part of the vision, and that's where Vahe and I spend a lot of our time and where we think we're uniquely positioned given our domain expertise uh, in this industry. The second thing we focus on is building a great leadership team. Uh, yeah, it really is the leadership team that pretty much runs the business, not necessarily Vahe and I. And so we focus on how do we recruit and retain and enable uh, high performers and not just high-performing individuals, but also how to cultivate that incredible you know, leadership dynamic where there's a high degree of trust and commitment and ownership uh, and debate and people have each other's backs. Uh, and so that leadership team is number two. And then number three for us is the high-performance culture. Uh, the, I think culture is the buzzword these days. Uh, we like to be specific about this. Our culture is one of high-performance. And what that means for us is one, there is a very high expectation of results. Uh, and two, there's a very high expectation that people genuinely care about their fellow teammates uh, and will do anything to make them productive and successful. And these happen to be the three areas we focus on vision, developing the leadership team, and a high performance culture. And for the rest, you know, it's the leadership team that has far more experience. Uh, leading businesses that that leads for us. Very cool, and 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 maybe we can follow up on that. The uh, in, in regards to culture, what are what would you say are the building blocks of a high performance culture? Sure, I think uh, first and foremost, it's being very clear that that is the culture that you want, and defining that in a way that makes it easy to understand. So, for us, some of the elements that go into that are things like we're ambitious, we go after big goals, we set lofty targets for ourselves, don't sandbag, we don't accept mediocrity. Uh, some of the other elements that go on there is having enough trust within the team to be able to hold each other accountable and uh, have that be an acceptable part of how we work together and not turn into some uh, you know, political sideshow uh, where you have a Game of Thrones type thing happening. Uh, and that becomes increasingly difficult as you scale. Uh, and ultimately, being metrics-driven and having a consistent rhythm of setting high expectations and then iterating and seeing where you're doing well, where you're not doing well, and uh, quickly adjusting to whatever those things are, um, are all the fundamentals. But at the end of the day, I think it comes down to the basics, which is that you know you hear a lot of companies talk about oh, we're a family, we're a family. And we just believe that that's disingenuous because I don't know about anybody else, but I've never fired an aunt or fired a cousin. <laughs> uh, but right. in a high-performing team, you know, there's still love, but that love is conditional. And it's conditional not only on results, but also in how you get the results and being a great team and not you know, stabbing each other in the back and all that kind of stuff. That's an instrumental part of uh, being a great team. But just calling it what it is and not pretending to be something that we're not. And once you do that, once you set expectations clearly, uh, it becomes pretty straightforward for people to understand what is expected of them and what is expected of each other. And ultimately, for high-performance culture, what you want is you want the team to be motivating each other, not RN myself from top saying, come on, guys, push harder, push harder. No, it should be the team that does it to themselves. Got it. That's very powerful. So there's one question that I always ask the guests that come on the show, and I'd like to uh, to ask uh, this question as well and to get both of your perspectives. So perhaps we start with, with your take on this, Ara. So if you guys, you know, knowing what you know now, I mean, 
we're talking about a business over 800 employees, 1.65 billion, you know, remarkable hyper growth uh, journey. Uh, if you had the opportunity to, let's say, you know, now looking back, the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, maybe that era that, you know, was uh, about to graduate, you know, let's say from from school, right? So uh, let's say from from Stanford and, and you were looking at launching your first business. What would be, you know, knowing what you know now, that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why? Man. I think I always knew how important it was to find other great people and bring them onto the team. But I've realized it's even more important than I thought. And the only way to build high growth businesses is by really making that number one priority, where that means it takes up the most amount of time on your calendar. Uh, an interview or searching for profiles isn't you know, this one hour uh, on your calendar for the week. It happens to be the, the dominant item on your calendar. It is the highest leverage activity uh, a founder can have is not just getting the, their own productivity, but the productivity of 10 or 100 other great people that are as close to, to their productivity as possible. Got it. What about what about you, Bayo? What would you tell your younger self, knowing what you know now, before launching a business? Yeah, uh, so I would agree with Ara that particularly once you're at a point where you're uh, able to hire people and have the, the focus, that is the most high leverage and important thing. I would probably, uh, the advice I would give would be probably for earlier stage, and it would be around making sure that um, you're focusing on the right problems to solve. Uh, because at least in our journey, uh, one of the big learnings was that we wasted an inordinate amount of time chasing problems that were not necessarily fake problems, but they weren't the right problem for us to be solving at that point in time, particularly when it comes from a product market fit perspective and having a nose for what matters and what doesn't. Uh, and a lot of times it's not some crazy like genius insight that you need to get, but it's just being mindful of where you're spending your energy and taking that little bit of effort to validate and understand what the underlying assumptions are before you spend months and months going in the wrong direction. Got it. That's very, very powerful. Very powerful, guys. So for the people that are listening, uh, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You know, perhaps uh, you have an email or a social media, you know, a handle that you would like to share. Ara, let's start with you. Yeah, absolutely. Ara at servicetitan.com. A-R-A at servicetitan.com. Always connect with people in the community. Fantastic. And by what about yourself? Same, uh, just with my name up front, V-A-H-E at servicetitan.com. Fantastic. Well, Aaron Bahe, thank you so much uh, to both of you for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Alejandro, thank you so much for having us. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.